Hello guys and welcome back to Athletistry Ballet Evolution. My name is Shane Werthner and I am your host. And today I'm going to be telling a little story about how I got into uh, the Kirov Academy. And then we're going to lead into some things about dance and how much uh, societal understanding and acceptance dance has and, and talk about, you know, just how dancers are treated in society and, and kind of the, the, the value that we're given, you know, as, as artists. So I'll start with my story. Uh, when I was, I would have been 11 years old, I believe, I, um, I auditioned for the Kirov Academy of Ballet summer program. And every year the Kirov would audition students for this summer program that would happen between July and August. And they'd do this big uh, tour all across America, but they also had people from, from overseas, from Europe and from, from Asia that would apply as well. And so it ended up being that you, there was usually anywhere between three and 5,000 kids that would audition for the summer program for the Kirov Academy. This was just one of the major ballet uh, schools in the United States that also had an academic facility attached to it. And so, you know, anywhere between three and 5,000 children would, would apply and audition uh, in person at the time. And of those three to 5,000 kids, somewhere between 120 to 150 kids would get, uh, would come to the summer program. So I don't know how many offers would be given, but generally it was somewhere between 100, somewhere around 150 kids that would come to the summer program. So from 5,000 down to 150, right? Now, of the amount of kids that would get into the summer program, only a small amount would get into the year-round program. So if you were offered a year-round uh, position with the school, meaning that you would come back in September and you would go to the school there, potentially board at the school, do your academics and ballet at that school, uh, it was usually somewhere between five and 10 kids maximum that would get offers to go to the year-round program. Now, in the time that I was at Kirov, so from uh, end of 1999 until 2005, there were really no more than 75 kids in the, in the entire school. And this ranged from sixth grade all the way through to 12th grade. Uh, boys, I think we only ever had something like 15 boys maximum in the school. Maybe the largest year was 20. Um, but generally speaking, it was not a lot, of, a lot of boys and the girls made up the rest. So you know, somewhere between uh, 40 to 50 girls in the school. So imagine that every year, you know, taking from 5,000 hopeful applicants all the way down to three or four, maybe, maybe 10 maximum, and, and you know, maybe three or four that would get in. And then graduating class, you know, our, the graduating classes at the school were usually very small. You usually have anywhere between 10, 10 to 15. In my year of graduating, I think at the time was the, high, the largest graduating class the school had ever had in 2004. And, uh, and we, had, we had 18 um, people uh, graduate from the, from the school. So it's a very, uh, I say all this, like the reason why I, I put all this out there and why I'm telling this story is because dance is a very, um, without saying elite, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a position, it's a, a training process that uh, is very difficult and it has a lot of stringent requirements attached to it. And to, to do it at the highest level possible, um, you have to go through a lot of different uh, kind of elimination processes to get there. You have to audition for, for the schools. You have to get accepted into the summer programs from the summer programs. You have to get accepted into the year-round programs. You have to be able to afford the year-round programs. Like I saw a uh, uh, little uh, um, 
infographic yesterday that said that training, training a dancer costs something like $160,000 you know, over the course of, of 10 years. Uh, and that's, you know, that's including clothing, that's including school fees, that's including point shoes, that's including you know, all, all this stuff. So it's, it's practically like a, a university education. You know, like you're getting a very high level of training, you're getting a very high level of, of uh, technical skill by the time you finish your dance career, uh, dance training. And in order to then take that into a professional space, you have to be able to transition that technical skill into something that people want to see and that directors want to see as well. So it's not just as simple as, okay, you, get, you graduate from, from your, your dance school and now you're guaranteed a job. Now, I know no industry guarantees jobs, and that's, that's not what I'm getting at. But one of the number one questions that you hear dancers get, and that I used to get asked all the time, even after you know, I'd, I'd gone and done a, a principal role on stage and you know, been in, in you know, the leading position, people would always come to you and say, oh, so you know, it's nice work tonight, but you know, what, do you, what do you do for your day job? Like, what's, your, what's your job? What do you do? Like, you, you don't do this all the time, do you? And, you know, it's like, it's almost like dance is not considered to be a legitimate profession. It's like, it's a, it's a hobby or, oh, you know, something you do on the weekends to have fun, a little bit of enjoyment. And so, I say this because I, uh, I posted a um, story yesterday on Instagram where I, I basically said, you know, the majority of dancers who start out in a professional career, let's say, let's say they get a, are lucky enough to get a, position in a major company um, that has you know, a, a large budget and a year-long contract and they're, and they're going to be um, in a job you know, all year long and performing all year long and contracted for that entire year to be a part of the company. Uh, the, the general starting salary, you know, if, you're, if you're lucky, is going to sit somewhere around $50,000 Australian, um, probably less. Uh, if you go around the world, like in some companies in, in the U.S., you know, you're, you're maybe lucky if you get $30,000 a year at, at, in a starting position. And, you know, here, here you are having trained for maybe multiple decades at this point, right? Like if you started your dance journey at the age of two and now you're 18, you've been, you've been in dance training for this for, uh, you know, 16 years, right? Like you're not you're not fresh in the movement of, of dance. You're maybe fresh to the professional industry, but you're not fresh in dance. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent on, on your training and, and your, you know, your ability as a dancer. And now you get an offer and you're, you're only going to make not even a third of what it costs to train you uh, in, that, in that first year. And, you know, half of that will be taken by the government in taxes. So it's a, it's a very challenging profession. And, and even... You know, I'll give you, I'll give you my, my numbers from, from when I was a professional dancer. When I started dancing uh, with the Vienna State Opera, I think I made something like 1,500 euro a month. Now that was before taxes were taken out. And uh, there was a 14 month contract in Vienna. So the way that that worked was every, every third month you got pay, pay and a half. So we'd have two months of, of 1,500 euro and then we'd have a month of, of more salary and then it would go two months of 1,500 and a month of more salary. And that was, it was paid out over 12 months, but it was a 14-month contract. Um, and then, you know, over the time that I was there, I think my highest salary with the Vienna State Opera was, was like 2,700 euro a month. So not, not heaps of money, you know, like we're not looking at, you know, 100,000, 200,000 dollars euro a year. We were, we were looking at under, under 60,000 euro a year as a soloist with the Vienna State Opera. And... 
so you know, coming to San Francisco, which was actually my highest paid position uh, ever in my entire career, uh, as a soloist, I made my max at eighty-three thousand uh, U.S. dollars per year, which you know, after taxes, I think I saw sixty-two thousand dollars a year or something like that. Uh, living in San Francisco, so you know, I was lucky that you know my my uh, my partner at the time, my, my wife now, was there with me, also making seventy thousand dollars a year as a top-level core dancer, right? Like you know, you think about that, and sure, we we lived comfortably, but we were not wealthy as dancers. And then transitioning from there to uh, Queensland Ballet, when I started with Queensland Ballet in 2014 as a soloist, my salary was 55,000 Australian dollars. Now that went up considerably over the time that I was there and they did do a lot to improve the dancer's salaries in the time that I was there, but it was not ever a lot of money. And I'm not saying that money buys you health and I think there's this, uh, you know, this mentality that all, you know, especially from companies, oh, we'll just pay you a little bit more and you can do more work and all this stuff. But if we look at any other performing arts um, outside, of, outside of ballet, ballet generally tends to be the lowest paid. Now I'm sure that there are going to be some in, you know, in some industries that are not paid as well, but generally speaking, ballet dancers are not well paid. And we are looked at as, as kind of the lowest on the totem pole. Like even the way that people respond to us as artists, um, it's like, oh yeah, they're, they're ballet. Oh, you know, what do you do? Again, that, that, that question, what do you do for a day job, right? And so I, I kind of look at it and I think, what do we do? What do we do to, uh, to change this? How do we evolve the, um, the acceptance of dancers? How do, we, how do we make dancers more culturally viable? Because I'm sure that there was a time when dancers were more accepted, when they were more respected in their art. Um, but you know, I, I also think it's a problem when companies pay their marketing departments and their health departments and their, their HR departments and all of these different sections of their business more money than the dancers that are there. Because I don't know any other profession that trains six, seven hours a day diligently for 10 years before they can become a professional dancer. And then on top of that, continues to train in their art form. So it's not like we just, you know, okay, now I'm a professional, now I can go and, and work. It's a daily, it's a daily work. Like we, we're in class every morning uh, in the studio from, from nine o'clock in the morning, usually until six or 7.30 at night, uh, rehearsing, perfecting our techniques, um, working with choreographers, performing multiple times and in multiple locations. And look, that's not to say that there are not dancers who do very well, who are very, very uh, successful, who, who you know, make lots of money and, and have um, very uh, wide ranging careers, but they are the, the few and far between. And, and you know, in, in comparison, again, taking it back to those original numbers, that's like the 1% of the 1% of the 1% who auditioned for the schools, right? Who, who maybe made it into the, to the, to the school. So, you know, I think, I think there has to be an adjustment. There has to be a change. And we can't start this adjustment and change without talking about it first. And everybody is so afraid to talk about um, how dancers are paid and how dancers are treated and, and the contracts that dancers are given. And I don't know if it's to protect those who are giving them. I don't know if it's to, it, it's to uh, protect the way that the companies run because the companies would prefer to uh, put more money into the productions or if they would prefer to 
um, pay the choreographers more if they prefer to pay their directors more. I know that directors of companies, artistic directors of companies are very well compensated uh, with many of them making more than two or $300,000 a year. Some of them making much more than $500,000 a year uh, depending on the company. So, and that's not to say that they don't deserve it. They have to, they have to work very hard, but the dancers also deserve to have more than, more than um, poverty level salaries for the work that they put in, for the challenges that they are put through, for the stresses that they have to deal with, uh, for the level of performance that they are expected to continue to perform at. And if they don't have the finances to feed themselves and they don't have the finances to take care of their fitness and they don't have the finances to take care of their, their well-being, especially in the United States, if they don't have health insurance because they can't, you know, they can't afford it, um, how are they going to take care of themselves? How are they going to handle their medical bills if they get injured? And so, you know, all of this stuff is, is, um, is challenging and it, it puts a, it puts a massive challenge on the artists to figure out how to sustain, sustain themselves and especially post COVID when everybody's struggling financially, it puts a massive challenge on the arts and the dance world. And so I think the discussion has to start. It's why I'm recording this, this podcast. It's why I am um, telling my story, my financial elements, you know, where I came from, how things worked for me uh, financially as a dancer because I think it is important to get the information out there. And I had many people respond to the story that I put up saying, yes, this, but how do we change it? We need to start to talk about what dancers experience. We need to talk about the challenges and the training that they go through. So to give you an example of what my time was at Kirov, we would start in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning. That was the start of school. And school would usually go for two hours. So we'd have from seven in the morning until nine o'clock in the morning, uh, academic school. And then from there, we would go into ballet, usually from 9.30 until 1.30. So we'd have ballet and ballet could include uh, just technique class. It could include, include repertoire. Um, usually partnering and character were separate, so they were other classes. But from that 9.30 to 1.30, it was us with our teacher day in, day out. So from Monday through Saturday we had those ballet classes. And then when we finished ballet, we'd go to lunch. We had about 40 minutes for lunch and then we'd go back into academic classes and we would do academics until 4.30 or 5.30 in the afternoon. And then potentially we would have a character or a partnering class and we'd finish at seven. And then we'd drag ourselves either back up to our rooms if we lived at school or into the car to go home, have dinner, do our homework, go to bed by you know, 11 o'clock at night and get up at five in the morning to start the whole day all over again. And that was, you know, six days a week, like I said, Monday through Saturday. Uh, and, you know, the school year ran from September until end of May. Uh, and then the summer program would run from, from middle of June until, uh, until August. And we would, we would do, have the same teacher. And that, that was my process. That was my training process. So I was at, from, at Kirov from 1999 until 2005. And that was my training process. And that was the training process of every other student that went through that school. Now, sometimes the academics swapped. So you'd have all the academics in the morning and the ballet in the afternoon. But generally speaking, that was the process. And that, that process is still mirrored across pretty much every large dance school institution. And that's not even taking into um, any of the consideration of how some of these girls are treated. You'll be hearing a lot of stories these days around um, you know, weigh-ins for girls in schools, which is just absolutely horrible, um, you know, pushing them to, to have eating disorders and, and body dysmorphia. 
um, and then that that um, subservient mentality that develops out of that because of because of the fact that they're not eating, they're much more um, likely to to give in to what is asked of them by their directors or by their you know people in power, uh, and and it just creates a, a, a cycle of abuse and trauma, and, and it's terrible. And then you know then they go into their professional careers and they're paid not very much money. And, and, you know, this is, this is the cycle that just continues and perpetrates and goes on and on and on. And as much as some people have tried to talk about it in the past occasionally, everything seems to get shut down and, and it never continues. The discussion never continues. And so what I want to do with this, what I'm trying to bring to the forefront is to start a discussion. I don't have all the answers. I don't expect to have all the answers, but I want to start the discussion so that people will start to talk about this, so that people will start to hold others accountable for the money that is being paid to these artists, uh, for the respect that is being given to the artists, for the work that they do, for the dedication that they have to this incredible art form that whether you like its historical background or not, has touched millions of people, has still has the ability to move people in an emotional way that other art forms do not and has not been able to replicate. And whether you like the background of, of, of ballet as being a European art form or not, uh, it has moved beyond that, and I think it will continue to move beyond that as we move into the, into the future. And, and um, as, a, as a culture and a society, we, we develop new stories and new ways of working, like I talked about in the last episode, new ways of working that tell the stories of those who haven't been told yet. And there are going to be new artists who have to come forward to tell those stories. It's not just going to be what has been before. We have to obviously acknowledge the history, we have to use the history that we come from, but then develop a new story and a new way of, of progressing forward. And so that's the next step. That's the next, uh, the next way that we have to go forward as, as, um, as artists, but also as uh, custodians of what we do as artists. You know, like, this is not just up to me, this is up to all of those who are out there who should be fighting for better, better circumstances for dancers, for um, more thorough training for dancers, not just in dance, but in understanding their bodies and understanding their mental well-being and helping them to understand sports science so that they can take care of themselves in understanding anatomy. Uh, in training dancers, we're not just training them to do what they have to do on stage, the technical skills. We also have to train them to be well-rounded human beings because when the career eventually ends and they haven't made enough money to save anything over the course of maybe the five to 10 years that they've been able to have a professional career, they then have to be able to transfer into something else. And there are some companies that do this very well, that have university connections that, that you know, like San Francisco Ballet was fantastic with this where they, they helped the dancers to uh, get a Bachelor of the Arts by the time they finished their, their time in the company, and it usually took somewhere between 10 and 12 years, but they would go on Sunday, they'd do their, they'd do their schoolwork from, from May until, in, or from January until May, and then they'd come um, at, at back in the, in the new year and, and start, start their new rep, right? And every year they'd, they'd push, that, push that a little bit farther and they'd eventually graduate from university with a degree. But many dancers don't have degrees because what ends up happening is there's this expectation that you'll go from high school straight into dance. That you, you know, you've, you've trained for your career, you've trained for your profession, which is going to be a ballet dancer. And at 18, you're thrust into the professional world. Uh, you, you know, you've had your five to 10 years of, of training that, that is necessary to get you there. You have your professional career. And then at the age of 30, you're deemed to be too old or, or you know, not what they're looking for anymore. And you either have to hang up your shoes or figure something else out or teach, right? And so, 
then we end up with potentially those, those who have had a difficult time in the dance career taking their trauma and passing it on to the next generation, and that's not right either. We have to help those who are moving from dance career to post-dance career to transition properly. And this is something that is also very difficult because again, the funding isn't there. The money is not being um, developed for those artists to transition from one to the other. So, you know, I think the next step is to start to have this conversation outside of dance because I think there's a misperception that dancers are well paid because we take care of our bodies, we, we dress well, because we are always on performance, we are always performing a, a role for society. And so we take good care of ourselves, we make ourselves look good, and so there's this expectation that we are also being paid to make ourselves look good, and that's not, not necessarily always the case. It could be in some cases, but not necessarily the case. And so I think if we could at least take the company salaries of dancers and, and make them higher and help these dancers to be able to understand that it's not going to be a lifelong career, that the most they're going to get out of it, if they're lucky and they, and they are able to stay healthy and keep themselves dancing is 22, 23 years, right? Like it's not going to be more than that. And then at, in their early 40s, they've got to figure out a new career. They've got to figure out a new place to go with that. And either they're going to move into a directorship or run a company or run a school, or they're going to have to transition into something completely different. And retraining in your 40s is not easy to do. So, yeah, that's, that's the discussion, guys. I think we have to start this discussion. We have to have more conversations about this discussion. And I want to, to, um, to help to lead this into the next era, to help to help dancers to become better compensated, to learn more about, about their bodies and their minds and further their, their understanding of life in general without dance just being uh, a means to an end, which is not a very large means anyway. So here we are, let's have the discussion, let's continue to evolve. This has been Athletistry Ballet Evolution. Thank you guys, I'll see you on the next episode.